You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. And then before we delve into our uh, beginning of understanding a biblical theology of covenant, I want to invite you to do two things for me to kind of get our, our minds thinking in the same direction. I want you to the best of your ability to write down as many covenants that you're aware of that Scripture deals with. Um, there's disagreement amongst theologians about how many there are, so I'm interested to see how many uh, you believe to be there based on things that you've been taught in the past. So how many covenants, list them out, don't just give me a number, but how, you know, how many covenants do you see in Scripture? That's the first thing that I want you to be thinking about. And then the second question is, if someone were to ask you which Old Testament laws a Christian was supposed to obey in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, how would you respond? So, first question, how many covenants are there? Which ones do you, do you know of? And then secondly, you're a disciple and a new believer. A new believer says, hey, um, what laws am I supposed to be obeying as a follower of Christ? Uh, because I, I read things in the Old Testament. I'm reading the Ten Commandments. I'm reading things around the Ten Commandments. And I'm confused as to how to know which ones am I supposed to obey, which ones do I not have to obey. So how would you respond to a, a, a new believer who is questioning, asking, what, what do I use as a guide for knowing what I can and can't do based on God's law? So how would you respond to that? So those are the two questions. To think about that, we've got a, a lot to cover today. There was At one point yesterday, I didn't know if we had anything to cover today um, because I was like, I don't know. I don't know what, what's going on here. And now I've got two pages of notes, and I've never come up here with more than one page of notes. Um, so we got a lot to cover, and, and if we, and I'm, I'm already resolved if we don't get through it, we'll just stop and pick up next week because my main goal today, or what I want to accomplish today, is to give us a basic understanding of the three major views on how to understand and interpret covenants through Scripture. So the three major views would be dispensational covenant and the new covenant. And so if we only get through one, if we only get through two, then we'll just pick up with the next one the next week. Um, But hopefully we'll get through uh, all three of them. But um, just to kind of give you an idea of where we're going over the next couple of weeks, today we're looking at covenant as a biblical framework looking at these three major views of how to see the covenants unfolding throughout Scripture. Next week, we're going to look at um, what's sometimes referred to as the covenant of works. If you don't have that one down, you could jot that one down, maybe, because some people don't believe in the covenant of works. Um, Two weeks from now, we're going to look at understanding the covenant of grace and what that means, where that comes from, and what's included in that. And then the last week, we're going to look at New Covenant implications. How do we understand the law? How do we understand baptism? How do we understand the coming of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant? So that last week's going to be some kind of fleshing out of, okay, this is what we believe about the covenants as a church now. How does that look for us moving forward in our um, ecclesiology, our, our living it out as a church family? What do we do with the Old Testament law? What do we do with the Holy Spirit, the gifting of the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? Um, and then also, 
why do we believe what we believe about baptism of believers versus infant baptism? So kind of gives you an idea of where we're going. Um, I was able to kind of put some of that together. I was telling Tyson and Topi, for me, it was kind of like when you play that game at Cracker Barrel where you're moving those pegs around, and for a while, you're just kind of moving them around. You're like, I don't know. And then this never happened to me, but I've seen it happen to others where it's almost like, it all just comes together, and they like see like the next four moves, and it's like boom, 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 and all the pegs are off except for the one. Uh, my wife's really good at it. Um, I don't think I've ever won that game. But that's how it was yesterday for me. It was, this This is so jumbled up, I don't get it. And then, thankfully, through the, the through the Holy Spirit, I believe that he brought clarification and understanding to me, at least in knowing how to organize this together so that we can understand dispensational theology covenant theology, and then new covenant theology. Um, So in your notes, covenant, it's a framework for understanding the biblical story. That's what we are looking at. That's why we're we're doing this. It's It's trying to establish a framework for us to use in seeking to understand the biblical story. Our goal is to see scripture through the lens of the achievement of our Lord to see scripture through the lens of the achievement of our Lord. We've already referenced that this morning, that Jesus has come to achieve or to fulfill the covenants that God has made with man. We're looking to develop the scaffolding needed to guide us through the storyline of the Bible, seeing how God has chosen to interact with man and establish his kingdom and glorious reign over all creation. It's giving us a framework to see how the Bible is put together, how we can understand the unfolding of God's story. My second goal, um, it's not in your notes, is basically to not teach anything or say anything that I'm going to change my mind about in the next couple of weeks. So we're we're moving slowly through this as, as God's confirming things to me as I'm studying through it. Um, it's another one of those situations I told you before with, when it came to eschatology end time studies, when I sought out other pastors in my life to get help on that topic, most of them said, I don't know. I don't know anything about eschatology. Really. I haven't really studied it. Um, same thing with this, um, asking other pastors in my life, Hey, can you help me understand, uh, theology or dispensational theology, covenant theology, new covenant theology? No, I don't, I don't know. Um, so it's very difficult for me when I don't have anybody to teach me, uh, this stuff. And so I'm having to really step out and learn a lot on my own. And so we're going to, we're going to move slowly when we need to, and then we'll move, uh, confidently, uh, as well, where I feel like we can, uh, in the meantime, why is this important? Why, why is studying covenant theology, new covenant theology, dispensational theology, why is that important? Uh, a couple of things before I give you the four reasons that are in your notes, uh, it, help us, it helps us to understand the relationship of law, gospel, and the structure of God's redemptive relationship with mankind. It gives us clarification and understanding of the role of the law, what we commonly look at as the Ten Commandments, the, the, the Old Testament law given to Moses. It helps us to understand law, gospel, and just the overall structure of God's plan to save man. There's also a lot of covenant debate in the New Testament. This was something that when they got together, it was a constant point of discussion. Matthew 5, Matthew 15, Matthew 22, Acts 7, Acts 10, Acts 11, 
Acts 15, Romans 4, Romans 9 through 11, Romans 14 through 15, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, Galatians 2, Galatians 3, Hebrews chapter 7 through 10. It's all covenant debate type stuff. How does the old come to the new? How do we understand the old in light of the new? So it's relevant to us because it was relevant in the New Testament time for the early church. They were having to wrestle through an understanding of the new covenant in light of all the other covenants that they were aware of in the Old Testament. We need to understand how the old covenant shifts to the new covenant. What is fulfilled in Christ? It's got implications for our ecclesiology, how we function as a church. We're going to see that and how we how we interact with the Old Testament law. Uh, whether we baptize infants or not baptize infants. So it's got implications for our ecclesiology, which means if somebody believes in infant baptism, it's coming out of their understanding of covenant. If somebody doesn't believe in infant baptism, it's coming out of their understanding of covenant. Now, some of us believe those things and don't believe those things more because somebody told us as opposed to it flowing out of an understanding of covenant. My desire is at the end of this that all of our beliefs, how we feel about the Old Testament law, how we feel about infant baptism and believer's baptism, how we believe and feel about Israel and the church and their relationship together flows out of our understanding of covenant, not out of what we were taught in Sunday school or by our parents or by somebody else in our life. That our belief system flows out of covenant because it should. Because whoever taught you those things hopefully taught you because they had studied covenant relationship with each other. Because that's where those doctrines flow out of. The reason some churches hold to infant baptism is because they understand the covenant differently than how our church would understand it. So there's implications for ecclesiology. There's implications for our eschatology. This is where discussion about Israel and the church comes into play. How the Old Covenant relates to the New Covenant determines whether we believe Israel in the Old Testament now includes the church in the New Testament to where they're grafted together as one people of God. Or as some people would say, God has plans for Israel, God has plans for the church, and they are different. That belief system flows out of how you see the covenants working together. So for your notes, the four reasons that it's important. Number one. The gospel of God is not properly understood till it is viewed within a covenantal frame. The gospel of God is not properly understood till it's viewed within a covenantal frame. That doesn't mean that you can't understand the gospel unless you understand covenant theology. But it does mean that you have not fully understood the gospel until you see it in light of the covenantal frame that it was given into. So as we study this, it should strengthen our understanding. It should strengthen our knowledge, the depth of knowledge that we have about the gospel, about the covenants. Even this morning as we're reading Hebrews 6 and 7, for some of you it's, what? What's going on there? There's a lot of discussion there that I'm not familiar with. He's describing the gospel in covenant form. He's describing Jesus as the guarantor of the new covenant, the guarantor of the gospel that we hold to. So the gospel of God is not properly understood till we see it in the framework of covenant. Number two, the word of God is not properly understood till it's viewed within a covenantal frame. We don't fully understand how the word of God, the plan of God, unfolds until we understand the relationship of the covenants together. Number three, the reality of God is not properly understood. We don't fully 
understand God and how he's revealed himself until we see him as a God who covenants with mankind. We come to a deeper knowledge of who God is as we understand him as a God who covenants with his people. Number four, the realities of the Christian life are not properly understood till it is viewed within a covenantal frame. The realities of the Christian life, meaning how do we interact with the Old Testament law? Do we baptize infants? Do we not? Do we see ourselves as part of Israel or not? So the realities of the Christian life, how we function as a church. Let me read this paragraph to you as a description of how we're to see the Bible through covenant. The story that forms this backbone of the Bible has to do with man's covenant relationship with God, first ruined and then restored. The original covenantal arrangement, usually called the covenant of works, was one whereby God undertook to prolong and augment for all subsequent humanity the happy state in which he had made the first human pair. Provided that man observed as part of the humble obedience that was then natural to him, one prohibition specified in the narrative as not eating a forbidden fruit. The devil, presented as a serpent, seduced Adam and Eve into disobeying so that they fell under the penal sanctions of the covenant of works, loss of good, corruption of nature. But God at once revealed to them in an embryo a redemptive economy that had in it both the covering of sin and a prospective victory for the woman's seed, a human savior, over the serpent and his malice. The redemptive purpose of this new arrangement became clearer as God called Abraham, made a nation from his descendants, saved them from slavery, named himself not only their God, but also their king and father, taught them his law, drilled them in sacrificial liturgies, disciplined their disobedience, and sent messengers to hold up before them his holiness and his promise of a savior king and a saving kingdom, which in due course became reality in the New Testament. So as we, as we see how the Bible unfolds in covenant, we want to see how they work together to describe to us, to, to visually demonstrate to us God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ for his glory forever. It's the gospel. It's God's plan unfolding throughout Scripture in the framework of covenant. There's three major systems that we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to try to briefly describe to you each of them with their major uh, major ideas so we can kind of differentiate between the two. Um, I think it's important first to, to make sure that we understand within these three, there's some similarities. First of all, they all agree that God has been progressively revealing his plan. Okay, so they all agree on that. They also all three agree that there are covenants in Scripture. Okay, so just because dispensational doesn't have covenant in its name, it's not that dispensational people don't see covenant in Scripture. Okay, so they all agree that God has brought covenant into um, his revelation. They all also see dispensations, and we're going to talk in a minute about what dispensations are. So just because covenant and new covenant don't have the word dispensation in their title, it doesn't mean that they don't believe in dispensations. They all believe that Christ has come to fulfill. The differences lie in the specifics of God's plan, the degrees of how Christ fulfills, and then the role of national Israel and the Old Testament law. That's where they differ. 
And I think it's important, too, to, 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 to stress that all three of them believe in the same gospel. Okay, so what that means is, is that we can have dispensational people, and they can be members of sovereign hope. We can have covenant people, and they can be members of sovereign hope. We can have new covenant people, and they can be members of sovereign hope. Because they all agree on the gospel, that we're saved by faith through the work of Jesus Christ. We all hold to the same gospel. Now, um, at least two of these are wrong. Maybe all three. Maybe we don't fully understand it. But there's guarantee that at least two of them are wrong because there can only be one right perspective. Now, does that mean the right perspective is going to be talked about today? Maybe, maybe not. But there's definitely error in this belief system. Uh, but what we can find encouragement in is that there's agreement on the gospel. Okay? Uh, so let's start with dispensational theology. Dispensational theology gets his name from the concept of dispensation. Uh, according to dispensational theology, they would define dispensation as a distinctive way in which God manages. You're going to have to choose what to write down here. And, and if, if you want notes, email to you. I can, I can email them to you. I, I left you some space to jot down things. I'm going to write down some things on the board. But listen more than getting overwhelmed. And if you have questions, text them in. A distinctive way in which God manages or arranges the relationship of human beings to himself. Each dispensation is a time of testing for mankind to be faithful to particular revelation given. So it's kind of uh, different elements of redemptive history is how they would break up the Bible. Covenant theology, New Covenant theology would break it up by covenant. Dispensation kind of expands a little bit on that and sees different uh, arrangements or, or time frames where God was interacting with his people differently. I'm going to give you the seven most accepted dispensations. Now, there's disagreements by people that hold to this. I'm going to give you what I've seen as, as the most consistent. So in dispensational theology, we've got the time of innocence. That's the time before the fall. Next, we have what they would call the time of conscience. This is from Adam to Noah. Then we've got the dispensation known as government. This is from Noah to Babel. Then we've got the dispensation of promise. This is Abraham. Moses, the dispensation of law, Moses to Christ, dispensation of grace, which is what we would be under now, Pentecost, the rapture, and then the dispensation of kingdom, that's the millennial Rain. So hopefully, from what we've already discussed through First and Second Thessalonians, you would immediately identify the fact that this is more of the left-behind perspective, the, uh, the rapture, tribulation, Jesus comes back, sets up a millennial kingdom where Israel's on this earth, uh, separate workings for Israel and the church. Um, that's where this perspective would go eschatology-wise.
That's why we got that last one there, millennial reign. They believe in a literal thousand-year reign on this earth by Jesus where essentially the Old Testament regulations, all that stuff is brought back into effect. So there's sacrifices being offered. Um, that kind of, I don't know, Tiffany, it's weird. It's like, what, what? Like, didn't we just read in Hebrews that we're done with that? Yes. Um, so we can go already know off the bat that I'm not going to fall in line with the dispensational uh, perspective. But there's a lot of valid people that believe it. John MacArthur falls more into this camp. So um, we welcome dispensational people to Sovereign Hope Church if they're here today. Um, we just think that you're part of the wrong group in the uh, the group of three up here. Um, some other identifying characteristics of dispensational theology. It places... Great emphasis on the purpose of God prior to Christ, meaning that Israel is not a shadow of something greater, the church. It has distinct purpose with earthly promises and fulfillment. So Israel and the church are separate. There's a lot of emphasis placed on God's uh, promises in the Old Testament. They're not seen as being fulfilled in the New Covenant with the church and the outworkings of the church. They're seen as their own individual promises. So the church remains separate from God's purpose with Israel. It sees discontinuity between the Old and the New Covenant. So, Old... And New Covenant are disconnected in a sense. The reason they're disconnected is because they see um, Old Covenant implications still for Israel. Now, they would say that Christians, believers that are not of national Israel, that they are not obligated to keep the Old Testament law, but that the law still applies to Israel specifically in that millennial reign time. So not as much now because there's no temple, there's no way to do some of that stuff, but that when Christ comes to sit on the throne of David, um, the Old Testament law will, will come back into effect to some degrees. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh the the Jews that enter into the millennial reign who would then become messianic Jews would offer sacrifices. I know, it's weird. What why? Um, I'm not sure, but I think John Piper might think this, uh, to some degree. Um, so carrying on, um, these guys are considered credo Baptist, which for some of our people, we clarified this week what this means. Credo-baptist means believer's baptism. Okay, so credo-baptist, we only baptize people that are Christians. So yay for the dispensational 
perspective here, they definitely, I would say, get this part right. Credo baptism. Uh, they seek to take the Bible literally, which is why the prophecies of the Old Testament for Israel are seen as being fulfilled in the millennial reign. It's an unconditional promise to Abraham. So uh, for them, the Bible... is literal everywhere. Even where it's using figurative parts of speech, there's a literal meaning behind it. Whereas when we've talked before about some of this eschatology, uh, the Amil perspective would, would look at some of the prophecies about land and uh, promises to Israel as being fulfilled in the new covenant through the church and through the new creative order that's coming when Jesus returns. More of a spiritual fulfillment. Um, whereas dispensational would say literal temple being rebuilt, Jesus sits on a throne, we're bringing sacrifices, worshiping him in that manner. Um, sometimes, I couldn't apply this to everybody, but there have been times in history where dispensationalists have leaned almost dangerously towards two plans of salvation, where at times it comes across as though Old Testament Israel was saved through obedience to the law, New Testament Christians are saved by grace, and then once again in the millennial reign, obedience to the law is necessary. Now, you can't apply that to all dispensational thinking. That's not true. Most would say, no, we don't believe that. But some of the way things are worded, and then again, in history, some people have dangerously leaned towards that type of perspective. Um, this is kind of this is kind of crazy. It, turn to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, prophecy in the Old Testament about the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. All right, so Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Dispensationalists would say that the covenant of Jeremiah 31 is different than the one in Luke 22. You want to flip over to Luke 22? Dispensationalists would say Jeremiah 31 is for Israel. It's not describing the new covenant for believers. Luke 22:20. 20. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus institutes the new covenant at the Lord's Supper. 
the Last Supper, dispensationalists would say that's a separate covenant from Jeremiah 31. Which is hard to reconcile with Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Author of Hebrews goes on to quote Jeremiah 31, describing that new covenant. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's hard to see three different covenants going on there. You've got the old covenant, a covenant described in Jeremiah 31 for Israel, and then this covenant in Luke 22 that's just for New Testament Christians. That that doesn't really hold up when you examine what Hebrews has to say. Hebrews is talking about two covenants. It's talking about believers who have left the old covenant, um, but dispensationalists would say these are two different uh, covenants. Okay, so... Big points of emphasis for dispensationalists. Bible is literal. Israel and the church are separate. Um, they break up history into these dispensations rather than in covenants, while they do believe in covenants. Um, and it ultimately, all this flows out of seeing disconnect between the old covenant and the new covenant. They're separate. They're not building off of each other. One's not fulfilling the other. Um, it's for two different peoples of God. So you can see theology flows out of how we see the covenants and how they uh, are in relationship with each other. Dispensational theology has been around for a couple hundred years at the most. It's definitely the newer of the three. Okay? Any questions about what we talked about here with dispensational theology? Anything that needs clarification? Obviously, most of us would have issues with some of the things that they believe, so we don't necessarily have to dialogue about that right now. But any questions about just clarification? Um, if you wanted to look more at dispensational theology, I could, I can give you authors to look at, um, not off the top of my head, but I'll put that together. So if you wanted to look more at dispensational theology, I can tell you the type of people to be looking for. Okay. Covenant theology. Covenant theology is a framework for understanding the overarching storyline of the Bible, which emphasizes that God's redemptive plan and his dealings with mankind are without exception worked out in accordance with the covenants that he has sovereignly established. So covenant theology is going to see the outworking of God's plan through the avenue of covenant. Okay, So it's going to place high emphasis on the covenants that we see in Scripture. All right, before I tell you the covenants that covenant theology sees in Scripture— what covenants are you guys already aware of? What covenants do you see in Scripture? Things that you wrote down. Okay, but marriage would be between 
individuals, not so much between God and man, but that is given to us as a picture of a covenant. Specific covenants, though, that God has made with his people or with individuals. Okay, we've got the Abrahamic. I'm going to tell you that they believe in two. Eight. Um, Abraham's the first one. What else? The Davidic. All right, so we've got the covenant made with David. What else? The Noahic, yep. What else we got? Do what? Yep, the Mosaic or the uh, the Covenant at Sinai, the New Covenant, which is made with the Church. All right, you're probably not going to get these because these are, does anybody know these? Say that again. They're different. Yeah. So they would call one the the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and then the covenant with Adam. Well, you may have heard a Damic covenant used in, yeah, either one. Um, covenant of redemption would be what they understand the the um, the Trinity coming together before the foundation of the world, determining to save mankind through Christ. So that's that's considered the covenant of redemption. It's what happened before creation ever happened. It was. God the Father saying, I'm going to save mankind. It was Jesus Christ saying, I will be the one to save mankind. It was the Holy Spirit saying, I will be the one to apply salvation to mankind. So when we see passages in in Ephesians where before the foundation of the world, this stuff was in place, was was part of God's plan, they refer to that as the covenant of redemption. Okay, The covenant of works is understood to be the covenant that God makes with Adam where he is brought into the garden, uh, trust me, be in relationship with me, don't eat of that tree. If you eat of that tree, you'll die. That's the covenant that they would say is referred to as the covenant of works. Then what they would really call this is the covenant of grace, the covenant with Adam, where God determines to save mankind even though they broke the covenant of works. If you if you break this, you'll die. Adam breaks it. He's supposed to die. But God brings the covenant of grace, which was planned in the covenant of redemption, to save mankind. And then all of these covenants flow out of what they call the covenant of grace. Okay, So essentially covenant theology says there's three main covenants. 
covenant of redemption determined before the foundation of the world, covenant of works given to Adam and Eve. They failed to keep it. So God institutes the covenant of grace, and he progressively reveals that through these covenants. Okay? Ms. Carolyn, if you have anything to add to this, you let me know, because you're probably the only other one in here that's looked at this extensively. So if I say anything wrong, you let me know that as well. <laughs> um, the covenant theology people would, would see two different views on the land, the land that we talked about with Israel. The land promises that were given to Israel were considered conditional, and they were forfeited because of their national disobedience. So God made real promises to Israel to give them land, but they forfeited those promises because of their disobedience. The land promises can also be understood from a typological view in that they are fulfilled in the new creation. The New Testament doesn't emphasize land promises, but instead stresses the dawning of the new age in Christ. So New Covenant theology would say the land promises that these guys say have to be fulfilled in the millennial reign can be understood in two ways. One, they were conditional promises that were forfeited because Israel was disobedient, so you don't get the land. Secondly, they can be seen as a typology of what's fulfilled in the church, and then ultimately when Jesus comes back and recreates the new heavens and the new earth. Two different perspectives on that. They don't see... Israel living in the land with with Jesus as king in the way that dispensationalists do. Okay. Um, just like Old Testament Israel, the church is comprised of both believers and non-believers. So a big a big point for covenant theology is what's known as a mixed community. Now this leads to infant baptism the argument from covenant theology and not everybody that believes in covenant theology holds to infant baptism but it's you have to make revisions i think to covenant theology to not believe i think this is the most widely accepted if you're studying covenant theology if you're reading books about covenant theology most of them are going to deal with infant baptism and, and the belief that we baptize kids because they say just like old testament israel had covenant keepers and covenant uh, breakers old testament israel they're all considered the people of god right but not all of israel was saved just because you were national israel didn't make you um a recipient of god's grace and you're with him now all of israel was considered the covenant community but only a remnant of old testament israel was actually saved Covenant theology would carry that picture over into the New Testament and say, if you're part of the church, you're part of the covenant community. But only a portion of the church will actually be saved, those who profess faith in Christ, which is why they would say we baptize infants. You circumcised your kids in Old Testament Israel with the hope that they would be professors of faith in Yahweh. That they would, they would put their faith and trust in him. They wouldn't worship other gods. So you circumcised them on the belief that we are raising them in the covenant community. They will profess faith in Yahweh. So they are given the sign of the Old Testament community. And that's valid. That's not a, do we believe that? Do we not? That's, that's valid. Like, 
Old Testament Israel was considered a mixed community. So you circumcise your kids with the belief that they will, they will grow up, this circumcision will be true. They will, have cut, they will have been cut away from the other people. They will have been uh, professors of Yahweh. Now, the covenant theology says it's the same in the, in the New Testament. So as we have children, we raise them in the church. We raise them in the covenant community. We baptize them with the belief that they will grow up and make that profession of faith to be part of the remnant of the covenant community. So just because you're part of the covenant community doesn't mean that you're saved. It still necessitates profession of faith, just like in the Old Testament. Is that clear as to why they believe in infant baptism? It's not just that it, it's, it's the same as circumcision. The reason they baptize infants is because they believe that the church is a mixed community. It's got believers and unbelievers in it. There are going to be kids that are baptized that never make a profession of faith, but it's okay because there were kids in the Old Testament that were circumcised that never made a profession of faith in Yahweh. Everybody clear on that? If you are raised in a covenant theology mindset where you are baptized as an infant and then you make a profession of faith later on in life like you should, it's my understanding that you would not be baptized again, correct? You're claiming that baptism as valid. In the same way, thankfully, they didn't recircumcise anybody when they made a profession, right? Okay, and, and so baptizing adults would be people that were not part of the covenant community. They weren't raised that way. They get saved, come into the church. Well, you need to be baptized because you were never baptized. In the same way that when people became part of covenant Israel, it's tough that you're as old as you are, but you're going to be circumcised. You know, like you weren't raised here. You didn't get it done in a way where you don't remember it. You're going to probably remember this forever, but we do this. So... The sign in the Old Testament applied to people of older age when they were brought into Israel from another nation. But, yes, yeah, as, as Ms. Carolyn's saying, it's a claiming of what's already happened. Hey, I claim that as being true. I, I'm making that profession of faith. So you don't baptize adults in a Presbyterian church unless they were not infant baptized. Um, I don't know. Does anybody know that? No. Okay. Yeah, I'm not yeah, I'd have to look into that more, I'm not sure. Yeah, that would just be a different in methodology. Sprinkling and immersion would be a, a separate um sprinkling really came about because it was more convenient. Um and um it, it would be a separate thing. But it's not related to this now, to my knowledge. All right, so mixed community, that's why they infant baptize. Uh, Doug Wilson would say uh, that the big difference is, though, that the ratio is 
more believers than non-believers, whereas in the Old Testament you had more non-believing Israel than Israel, Doug Wilson would say the difference is is that there's more believers than non-believers. And we would expect Doug Wilson to say that because he's a post-millennialist, which means he believes that eventually everybody's going to be saved. So we would expect him to say the ratio is going to be better uh, in the New Testament. Um, sees great continuity in the covenant. So old and new are connected. They're connected covenants. There's continuity there between those two. This leads to that infant baptism belief. It's a new sign of the covenant, but it's the same type of sign of the old covenant. They're called paedo-baptists. Did I say that right? Paedo? Paedo-baptism. That's baptizing infants. And we'll look later at, at why they... Um, where they get that belief from, but in 1 Corinthians 7.14, it talks about the new covenant being for your children, which is very similar to the Abrahamic covenant wordage. Uh, From the very beginning, all of mankind uh, that was going to be saved was saved the exact same way, so there's not two ways of salvation. By faith in the redemptive work of Christ, uh, the old covenant of works was passed away, Hebrews 8.12-13, uh, that we are no longer under its sentence of death. The old was the example which the new brought to light and consummated. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, talking about Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Jesus saves us from the old covenant. Now, this is where this is a big point of covenant theology, and I'm running out of room there. Um, this is how covenant theology interprets the Old Testament law. Okay, the old covenant laws are not done away with; rather, they are fulfilled or completed for the believer in Christ. In this way, the old conditional promise has become new and unconditional. Thus, covenant theology embodies the belief that the law is not destroyed or abrogated, but passed away only in that it is fulfilled in Christ. In this way only, we are dead to the law that it cannot condemn us, not that we are exempt from abiding by the law. Okay, so covenant theology says Christ came He fulfilled the Old Testament law. He sets us free from the condemnation of the Old Testament law, but he has not come to remove the Old Testament law. We are still obligated to obey the Old Testament law. Okay? Um, It's fulfilled. We don't obey it for righteousness. We don't obey it to earn our salvation. It's an unconditional promise now because Jesus fulfilled it for us. But we're still obligated to obey it. Now, obviously, they don't mean that we obey all of it. Give me some of your thoughts on new believer comes to you and says, hey, which Old Testament laws am I supposed to keep? What's your response? Ten Commandments? Just the Ten Commandments? 
You tell them to keep the Sabbath? Or, or the nine commandments? You're going all ten. Okay. Just the, is it just the Ten Commandments that the New Testament believer is obligated to keep? Anything else in the Old Testament law? So Ms. Carolyn is saying that, that Jesus kind of summarizes the law, kind of brings it down to uh, two laws in a sense where we're, we're loving God, we're loving others, and that in that we're fulfilling the law. But why? Okay. See, some people will say, hey, the Old Testament law is fulfilled, but we keep things like the Ten Commandments. But then you'll find some people in conservative situations where they'll say, hey, it's wrong for a Christian to get a tattoo because Leviticus talks about that, that, that you're not allowed to cut your body, you're not allowed to tattoo yourself. That would be an example where someone would be, hey, Ten Commandments, but then I'm also going to potentially pick and choose some additional things to add to that. Okay. Doug Wilson's Covenant Theology, yeah. Yeah, he might. I know he doesn't like tattoos, I'm pretty sure. I think he I think he wrote an article about it though. Well, that's another point. There there's things that we're told not to eat. Are those things that are still binding on us in the New Testament? Okay, here's how covenant theology explains it. Okay, here's how covenant theology explains it. Covenant theology says that we divide the Mosaic law up into three groups of laws. Those regulating the government of Israel, which we would call civil laws. That would be we stone people that disobey their parents. Okay, like we're not permitted to keep that civil law here in America. We would be thrown in jail if we found out that you were stoning your kids. We're not under our own government like Israel was. So covenant theology would say you divide the laws up into three groups. There's civil laws, things that were specific to the government of Israel. There are ceremonial laws, 
the sacrifice system, the temple regulations, all that type of thing. And then there's the moral law. They would say the ceremonial law and the civil law are no longer in force. Because the former was fulfilled in Christ. Christ came and did away with the ceremonial laws, no more sacrifices. And the latter, talking about the civil laws, only applied to Israel's government, which is now non-existent as far as how it worked in the Old Testament. But the moral law continues. The covenant theology would say everything that's morally related in the Old Testament law, the New Testament believer is supposed to keep. Civil laws, regulations, that kind of stuff is done away with in Christ or because that time is done with. Okay? Um, uh, another unique thing about covenant theology is they say the church exists in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit indwelt believers in the Old Testament in the same way he does today. So there's not a, a difference in the Holy Spirit indwelling and sealing believers, that he sealed them in the Old Testament, he seals them in the New Testament. Okay, Church has, has always been God's people. The church existed in the Old Testament. It continues to exist in the New Testament. Okay, So big things about covenant theology. Uh, obviously, they divided up by covenants. It's a mixed community, so we baptize infants just like we, bat, we circumcise kids in the mixed community of Israel. Old and New Covenant, very connected, almost the same. Um, and then they're paedo-baptists, we already said. They, their view of the law is that the moral law carries over into the New Covenant. The civil law, ceremonial laws are done away with. Covenant theology. Question? Nope. All right. New Covenant Theology. New Covenant Theology is a type of middle ground between these two. It's what I would say is the Baptist perspective on Covenant Theology. doesn't mean that there's some things that New Covenant theology believes that maybe a Baptist would not believe that believes in covenant theology. But if you want to kind of reconcile some of the things like, eh, I'm not comfortable with infant baptism, then you're probably going to be more in line with New Covenant theology. Because New Covenant theology would be the credo-baptist, believer's baptism, because they see some disconnect between the old and new covenants. So dispensational sees like a big disconnect, two different people. Covenant theology almost sees no disconnect. It's almost like the same covenant to a degree. Not They wouldn't say that, but there's so much connection there that there's not a whole lot of disconnect. Whereas New Covenant would say, no, nah, give me some space right there. Like not as much as the dispensationalists, but give me a little bit of space so I can call it a New Covenant because there's definitely some new things about it. Um, all right. Um, God's eternal plan unfolds centered on Christ, sees discontinuity in the covenants based on the plan unfolding. Now, I want to share with you some agreements and disagreements. And this is how we'll kind of wrap it up between covenant and new covenant. There's no sense in me repeating a lot of what we've talked about with covenant because new covenant believes 
most of what covenant theology believes. But there are some differences that I want to highlight just so we can separate them and see the differences between the two. As far as agreements, the church has been grafted to Israel. So they see Israel and the church is now one people of God. Uh, God's saving purpose is tied to one people. They see the covenants of Jeremiah 31 and Luke 22 as the same covenant, just like covenant theology does. So new covenant and covenant see what Paul describes in, in Romans. Israel has has now had Gentiles grafted to them making still one people of God that now consists of Jews and Gentiles. We now call it the church in the New Testament, but it's one people of God, one plan of God, one purpose of God, not what dispensationalists would say is a heavenly purpose where uh, believers in the New Testament are in heaven and then believing Israel spends eternity on earth. One people of God, one purpose. Some differences between New Covenant and Covenant. Uh, New Covenant does not believe in this, this, or this covenant. They believe the themes of those ideas, but they don't call them covenants because Scripture doesn't specifically call them covenants. So, does a New Covenant theologian believe that before the foundation of the world that the Trinity formed a plan of salvation? Absolutely. They just don't call it the covenant of redemption because Scripture doesn't call it that. Do they believe that Adam was put into relationship with God and was expected to obey God's command, and if he broke it, he would die? Absolutely. They just don't call it a covenant of works because Scripture doesn't use that language. Do they believe in a covenant of grace? Absolutely. They just don't call it that because Scripture doesn't refer to it that way. For New Covenant theology, they say that covenant theologians read this into Scripture and basically, to help simplify things, come up with these additional covenants to break down Scripture so that it's easily rememberable kind of thing. Covenant theology would say, we believe that the Trinity planned salvation beforehand. We believe Adam had to obey God, and we believe that God responded in grace by promising the seed of of Eve to come and destroy Satan. But they're only going to call covenants covenants that Scripture calls covenants. Make sense? Okay, that's a that's a difference. It's not. A, I mean, it's not a huge difference. Like it doesn't change a whole lot. It's just how you refer to it, how you talk about it, kind of thing. Um. Here's the big differences. It rejects infant baptism. Okay, so New Covenant theologians do not baptize infants. They see the church as a regenerate community. What Jeremiah 31 describes. Holy Spirit comes, law being written on the hearts. It's a a separate, only believing community. It's different from the Old Covenant. The new covenant is only true professors of faith in Yahweh. So it rejects infant baptism. It also sees the beginning of the church at Pentecost with the Holy Spirit coming in a new way. The new uh, new covenant theologians say, while it's one people of God, it was Israel in the Old Testament, and now it's the church in the New Testament. Because Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church implying in, 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 in a sense that he's starting it. He, he's, he's building it from the ground up kind of thing. 
Um, and so they would say the Holy Spirit indwell, did not indwell believers in the same way in the Old Testament as he does in the New Testament. Um, the other major difference between New Covenant and Covenant centers on how they handle the Old Testament law. Okay, so let me explain this to you, and then we'll basically be wrapping it up. New Covenant theology sees the law of Moses as a unified package not to be divided up. Meaning, you can't claim that part of it is done away with, but part of it isn't. So New Covenant theologians say, don't chop up the law of Moses when Scripture doesn't do that. You don't have the right to put laws into categories and determine which one you will obey and which ones you won't. Okay, so... um, New Covenant theology says the law of Moses, the the Sinai law, is the Sinai law. All of it. It's a covenant together. It's a working package, a working unit that Christ came to fulfill. It sees the law of Moses fulfilled in Christ and no longer binding on the New Testament believer. The New Covenant theology says this package was given to Moses and Israel at Sinai complete with all the ceremonial regulations, the civil regulations, um, the the moral regulations. It It was a package deal. Jesus came to fulfill the package deal, which means he kept the law. He obeyed the law, and he has now nullified the law. He has removed the law. He has made the Old Testament law obsolete for the New Testament believer. New Covenant theology says the New Testament believer is not obligated to keep anything in the Old Testament law based on it being in the Old Testament law, that it was a package deal that Jesus completed. Okay? Well, the natural reaction is, so does that mean I can go out and have adultery and disobey my parents and and just run wild and, and not have any moral obligation? No. That's not what New Covenant theology teaches. Instead, New Covenant theology sees the law of Moses fulfilled in Christ, and it now understands new believers to be under a new law, the law of Christ. The covenant, New Covenant theology would say, is new. It's different. 1 Corinthians 9.21 To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Paul describes Jewish people as being under the law, under the mindset of Old Testament law. He then describes having to reach people who are outside the law, but not completely uh, removed from law-abiding responsibilities. He places them under a new law, the law of Christ. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 9. We're going to look at this more extensively in a couple of weeks. I just want to kind of highlight to you some of their argument. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So it's a different type of covenant, the author of Hebrews would argue. Um, Hebrews seven twelve. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So with Christ being a different type of priest, he brings a different type of law. Um, 
You could also jot down Romans 6.14, Romans 10.14. Now let me kind of bring this all together and make sure we understand what New Covenant theology says about the law. The eternal moral law of God is expressed as a particular code in the Mosaic law. A different expression of this same moral law is the law of Christ, the moral teachings of the New Testament. So don't panic. To a degree, they're saying the same thing. Covenant theology says we don't keep the ceremonial laws, we don't keep the civil laws, we keep the moral laws. New Covenant theology says, you're right, the moral laws are an eternal reflection of God's holiness. But we don't keep them because they're in the Old Testament law. We keep them because they are given to us in the New Testament as what we would call the law of Christ. We're keeping the same laws, but we're keeping them for different reasons. And what it does is it keeps me from having to explain to a new believer which ones to keep and which ones not to keep. It's, hey man, the Old Testament law is done with. We don't keep the Old Testament law. We keep the law of Christ. Now, sometimes people say, hey, you keep everything from the Old Testament law that's reiterated in the New Testament. So things that we find in the New Testament that are also in the Old Testament law, those are the ones that we keep. That's true. But New Covenant theology would say, say it the right way. We don't keep it because it's in the Old Testament law. We keep it because it's the law of Christ. The same laws which means we're not going to commit adultery, we're going to obey our parents, but we also can get tattoos, right? The law of Christ is different than the Old Testament law in the sense that it's a new covenant, new obligations. It just carries over a lot of them from the Old Covenant. But the New Testament tells us which ones to keep by instituting a new covenant. It protects us from having to divide a law that was probably never meant to be divided. Okay. Um, the Mosaic Law still has relevance as a prophetic witness, but not as authority or law. Let me tell you how John Piper refers to it, as, and then I'm going to kind of expound on his illustration. There are many similarities between the Law of Christ and the Mosaic Law, but that does not change the fact that the Mosaic Law has been canceled, and that therefore we are not to look to it for direct guidance, but rather to the New Testament. For example, England and the U.S. have many similar laws. For example, murder is illegal in both countries. Nonetheless, English are not under the laws of America, but of England. If an English, English citizen murders in England, he's held accountable for breaking England's law against murder, not America's law against murder. I think you could refer to, I think you could view it in the sense of when we were part of the English colonies, we were under the English law. Okay? Then we were set free from the English law when we won our independence. We become our own government, which means we now need rules, laws, regulations to live by. The, 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 the American people that established the laws of this land did not look to the English laws and say, hey, let's scrap all of that and let's just come up with our own new way of living. No, I imagine they looked to it and said, hey, there are some things that we should carry over here in America. There's some things that we're going to continue to do. We're not going to murder here. That was something that we used to have to obey the king in England about. But now we're going to obey it because it's our government. So there were some similarities that carried over into the American government. But there were also some things that were left out. 
because that was an old government that we were set free from. I think that, that, that parallels to some degree what's going on in the New Testament. There is a moral law that reflects God's holiness, and it was given in the Mosaic law along with a lot of other laws. When Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament covenant, when he came and fulfilled it, he made it obsolete, giving us a reason for a new covenant that still carries a lot of those same laws, but doesn't impose civil laws and ceremonial laws that no longer have any bearing on the life of a Christian. So again, it's virtually saying the same thing, but it's understanding the covenants differently. It's understanding it differently in the way that you even present it to a new believer. Hey, what am I supposed to do as a follower of Christ? Well, let me turn to Exodus 20 and give you the Ten Commandments. No, let me turn to Matthew 5 and give you the Sermon on the Mount, where you're going to find a lot of the same commandments, but in a New Testament context. Does that make sense? So New Covenant theology is not teaching what would be known as antinomianism, which means there's no law to obey. It's saying, obey the law of Christ. Obey what's taught in the New Testament. Don't hold people to the Old Testament covenant that has been uh, nullified by what Christ did on the cross. Any questions about covenant, New Covenant, their relationship to each other? Again, New Covenant's more the Baptist position, but... You don't have to believe in that perspective on the law to be a Baptist. Um, that's why some people might would still call themselves covenant theologians, but they don't believe in the infant baptism part. But maybe they don't believe in that perspective on the law regarding new covenant theology. Um, but it is more Baptist, uh, Baptistic in its understanding of the covenant. Most of the people that I did ask said they leaned towards new covenant theology from my realm of pastoral friends all right so two points of application then we're done application number one let covenant lead to worship as we continue to study covenant theology and we're gonna we're gonna at times i'm gonna say covenant theology not necessarily meaning the second perspective but just a theology of covenant in general so as we continue to study the covenants we want it to lead us to worship listen to what um a quote from one of the books that i'm reading right now it says The biblical covenants are the means of fulfilling God's saving promises. Each covenant is intended to advance God's saving program, which culminates in the new covenant. While God faithfully meets his covenant commitments, the human parties consistently fail to meet their obligations. So like we said earlier, promised a seed to Eve, but none of Eve's descendants were good enough to be the redeemer. Promised to bless the world through Abraham, none of his descendants were good enough to bring blessings to the nations promised a a descendant of David to rule and reign forever, to be the the ultimate king. None of David's sons were that. God himself, as the covenant maker and keeper, must unilaterally act to keep his own promise through the provision of a faithful, obedient son. The kingdom is established as God himself keeps both sides of the covenant. Because of this and other similar insights, few exegetical studies will lead you to worship as often as studying the covenants fulfilled in Christ's will. You get that? God makes covenants with mankind that mankind cannot keep because of his sin. So God makes a covenant and then sends Christ to keep the covenant for us. So ultimately, God makes the covenant and God keeps the covenant. 
He keeps his end of the bargain, but then he sends Christ to keep the other end of the bargain because we can't keep the covenant because of our sin. It ultimately should lead us to worship, to worship Christ, because Christ comes to do everything that none of us could ever do. He's the fulfiller of the covenants. He ushers in the new covenant. As we read earlier, he's the guarantor of a better covenant. Lastly, let covenant lead to assurance. Let covenant lead to assurance. And we were highlighting some of this earlier about the fact that God gives us signs to bring us comfort that he will keep his covenant. In Genesis 15, 8, you have like a weird Old Testament scenario going on that would just be completely odd if we did it here. In Genesis 15, 7, God has made the covenant with Abraham already. He said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Abraham responds, though, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So God says, Abraham, remember, I made a covenant with you. And Abraham says, I'm having a time of doubt right now. How do I know you will keep your covenant with me? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. What's going on there? Like, why is he cutting up animals and then passing flaming torches through them? I think Ligon Duncan offers a, um, a helpful perspective on this. He says, The whole function of the covenant, and especially of the covenant signs, is to assure us of God's favor. This passage talks about God confirming his promise by the covenant, a mechanism that he put in place in order to assure us of his purposes and salvation towards us. Every one of us as believers from time to time struggles with doubt. When we struggle with doubt, usually corresponding to that, there's a struggle with assurance. Isn't it comforting for you to know that one of the things that God has spent the most time on in his inspired word from the very beginning, from the book of Genesis, is the assurance of the signs of the covenant? When David was wavering in his faith in 2 Samuel 7, what did God do? He established his covenant with David, establishing David's line on the throne. When we waver in our faith about the purposes of God towards us, what has God given us to be strengthened in our assurance? The signs of the covenant, communion, the Lord's Supper, the covenant meal, and baptism, which we see administered from time after time, reminding us of God's initiative for us. So the covenant constantly functions to assure believers of God's steadfast purposes towards them. Even though we are fickle, he is not, and the covenant speaks to that issue. He is a God who binds himself. He comes towards us and he says, I will do this. I not only promise it to you, I bind myself by, I bind myself by oath. And since there is no one greater than me, I bind myself by my own oath to perform the promises that I have made to you. Don't forget that this is what the covenant is about. Very close to its heart, the assurance of God's people, of God's purposes, towards 
them. This is unheard of in, in Old Testament times for a God to make this type of covenant with his people. It's typically people trying to make a covenant with their God. What God is communicating here when he splits these animals in two, he's saying, if I fail to keep my covenant, then my reputation should be cut in half like this. That I should be eaten by carcasses of, or, or eaten like the carcasses of, of the birds coming here. He says, I should be utterly destroyed if I don't keep my covenant with you. Abraham says, I'm having a time of doubt. How do I know you're going to keep this covenant? God institutes this sign and says, I will definitely keep my covenant. I'm making an oath with you. I'm swearing by the greatest being ever, me, that I will keep this covenant. That has, that has implications for us today as we celebrated the Lord's Supper earlier. How do we know that, that God's going to keep his covenant? Because he killed his son on the cross for us. He broke his son's body on the cross for us. He spilled his son's blood all over the ground for us. He will keep his covenant, and he's given us signs of that. As we partake of communion, it's an opportunity for us to be assured of the fact that covenant has been instituted and covenant will be kept. So this isn't just a study for us to increase our knowledge and say, okay, now I understand the three concepts of covenant. It's for us to say, hey, Christ deserves all of my worship because he does everything that I'm incapable of doing. He keeps the covenant for me. It also ought to provide assurance to us as we go through times of difficulty that God will keep the covenant that he's made with us, that he will not waver in it that he sent his son to be the guarantor of this better covenant that we now live under. Next week, we're going to start looking at the different covenants. I'm going to explain to you um, my perspective on this. It's, it's my attempt, my goal to move our church towards a new covenant understanding, um, just to kind of know where, where I stand in this right now. Um, so it, it's on me to present that through Scripture, to lead you into that un, that understanding. But... As I told you, it's not expected that you have to believe the same way that I believe about this type of thing. Um, some helpful books that I can give you right now, and I'll get some references for dispensational um, theology. But a couple of books that I'm reading right now, if you wanted to study along, and I would encourage you to use these next few weeks to, to at least look at this on your own some. Not just come and hear what I've got to say, but to do some initial study on your own. One book that I'm looking at right now is Covenant Theology, a Baptist Distinctive. Contributions by different authors there. Um, what is New Covenant Theology? It's a real small book with real big print, so you could really finish this in a day, maybe a few hours. It's by A. Blake White. New Covenant Theology by Tom Wells and Fred Zaspel. Looks like that. These are all available on Amazon. Uh, this one was a lot bigger than I anticipated when I ordered it. Um, Kingdom Through Covenant by Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam. Um, it's a perspective on New Covenant theology as well. These are books that I'm looking at right now to better understand both covenant theology and New Covenant theology um, if you're interested in kind of studying along as we go through this. Any other questions before, before we wrap it up? Any questions on anything that we've looked at today? I know it's a lot. Everybody feel like they understand the differences between these three and, and why they believe some of the things they believe? Yep.
It would be anybody that was what we would call saved in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at that more in depth too. When we get to that last sermon, the, the New Covenant implications, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit. We're going to look more in depth about how to view the law. And we're going to look at the issues of baptism too. All right. Uh, I'm going to pray to dismiss us as... As you leave, I encourage you to give in the back as the Spirit leads you. I encourage you to give in that way. Um, Stay up to date on what's going on in the city with events that are coming up and uh, that type of thing. Make sure that you're making contact with your accountability groups and seeking to meet before the end of the month when we do our group huddles and continue to move forward with accountability in our church as well. God, we thank you so much for the time that we've had this morning to gather with other believers to hopefully learn more about you and the relationship that you desire to have with us. God, I'm thankful that you've given us the framework of covenant to see how your plan unfolds. Father, I pray that you would continue to teach us about what it means for you to to make promises in your word. And God, I pray that we would continually find assurance in that. Father, that this study would not simply be a time to increase our knowledge, but to increase our assurance and our trust in you as we learn that you are a God who covenants, but also a God who keeps his covenant. Father, I pray that it would also lead us to a a deeper level of worship towards Christ as we understand that uh, you have revealed these covenants to point to something greater, that you have anticipated sending Jesus. And God, I pray that that anticipation in the Old Testament carried over into the New Testament, would continually point us to worshiping Christ as we anxiously wait for his second coming. God, I pray that you would teach us and grow us over the coming weeks and we would better understand the whole counsel of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.